On The Regenerative Journey, our goal is to nurture and facilitate the lives and journeys of all our followers, which is why we've teamed up with resource consulting service, RCS, Australia's leading provider of education and advisory services in regenerative agriculture. RCS trains and consults across the ag sector, from individuals and families, through to corporates and even government, empowering people to grow productive and profitable businesses in diverse and, importantly, healthy landscapes. They understand that the future of healthy families, resilient communities and regenerative farming lies in holistic education. Over the last 15 years, I've played an integral role in my own regenerative journey. And I have a lot to thank RCS for, and I'm one of 7,500 others who have attended their farming and grazing for profit course. I don't know where I'd actually be, uh, and I certainly wouldn't be this far down my own regenerative journey if I hadn't completed a significant amount of training with the RCS team. I can't recommend more highly uh, RCS to anyone looking to start their regenerative journey in a supportive and proven environment. Terry, Makoska and your team, you absolutely rock. And we're also absolutely stoked to be collaborating with them now. For my listeners only, we're offering a 10% discount on all farming and grazing for profit schools and grazing clinics in Australia this year. If you add this to the early bird rate of a seven-day school, you could get a whopping $1,000 off the standard price. Simply add the code CHARLIERCS, that's CHARLIERCS, that's one word, at the checkout to get your concession. How awesome is that? Now head to the show notes to find out more. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever done because at the same time with social change, you get a lot of pushback and people say, don't talk to me about social change. I just want to have a beer, you know. So you get the pushback of people who don't want change. And so there's that natural tension between the agitators and people who want change and those who don't. That was Rose Kentish and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. From wherever we are, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia, recognising their continuing connection to this land, its waterways, the stars in the skies since time immemorial. We pay our respects to the elders, knowledge holders and to all the generations of First Nations peoples who have nurtured their unceded sovereign lands for over 80,000 years and continue to do so today. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer and in this podcast series I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host Charlie Arnott. G'day and welcome back to The Regenerative Journey. And before I introduce my next guest, the guest for this, for this episode, um, time for aroma, as Reese calls it, um, which I have to say has been received pretty well by our listeners. I, I have to say, I'm get, getting quite a few comments um, to say there are people who are enjoying it, which is wonderful. Because um, if people weren't enjoying it, I'd like to know and I'd probably, well, I may not stop doing it. It's an opportunity to purge. Um, Not that I need to purge. But anyway, um, one thing that came up the other day, which was... Oh, no, before I do that, I'm I'm sitting in an office. Paul, I think it's Paul. I don't know Paul. but Paul's office in Gemtree um, Winery uh, here in the McLaren Bar. We've just um, taken a break from our two-day introduction to biodynamics course here. But Melissa and Mike... Very kindly hosted for a second year in a row, 
um, with some wonderful attendees. But my point is that, yeah, if it's a little bit echoey, then that's because that's I'm in this room. Um, wonderful place to be, <clears throat> a little bit of rain overnight, uh, which hasn't um, changed our plan too much. Uh, however, um, and yeah, Friday we're all packing up and we'll be heading off this afternoon, although tomorrow, uh, after a really wonderful week, um, in, I interviewed um, uh, John and Kim uh, Koleski there in Barossa Valley on Tuesday morning, sort of midway through our intro course there with them and the Barossa, uh, and a day of interviews or two interviews on the Wednesday, one being the guest I shall introduce later, and another one, um, Jay Marinas, who is, uh, he'll be, I'm not sure when his episode's going to come out, um, in the future, in the next couple of weeks, wonderful fellow who's doing amazing things in the sort of community gardening um, health, mental health space. So you'll just have to tune into Jay in a couple of couple of weeks to work out what sort of a, you know, cryptic thing I'm talking about. Getting on to oh, biodynamic workshops, of course, coming up in Queensland. We'll be in Claremont, or outside of Claremont, 22nd, 23rd of um, uh, of June. Uh, we'll also be at oh, 25th, 26th, we'll be at Biloela in Queensland as well. Uh, on the 29th and 30th, we'll be at Sunshine Coast uh, with our lovely hosts um, Nina and Mitch have done it quite a few times now so that's 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 wonderful um, so Cherie's looking after us at uh, Billa Wheeler and Shantae up at Claremont uh, also on the 14th and 15th of July in the next month at the Scenic Rim um, up in Queensland there just over the border at um, at Kay Tomarup's farm there and it's going to be fantastic <coughs> now uh, I'll be in Burrower in later in September. And don't forget, you can actually buy uh, vouchers as well if you want to get into our workshops. Um, you can buy vouchers for portions of or full tickets. Um, and I reckon, I reckon anyone who buys a voucher, a full voucher to a t- to a, to an event, um, we might slip them a slip them a um, an almanac. Phoebe from our Camilla uh, has put together a wonderful um, 2022 biodynamic. Um, calendar almanac that um, has all sorts of um, planting and cosmic and moon phase calendars in there, um, place you can record all your cool gardening activities and so much more. Um, it's a beautiful publication. That's all we'll do. We'll give away one of them. It's worth $60, recommended retail price, um, to anyone who buys a voucher, uh, full, a full ticket voucher. Cool. Rightio, what I'm going to do is going to have... Oh, no, when we were doing the Barossa chat the other day, Barossa um, workshop, Brittany, who was there, she has just done a ag science course, um, <clears throat> brought up the interesting interesting uh, idea, not idea, sort of concept or uh, movement. I wouldn't call it an initiative for, re- for, for, for reasons that will become obvious, um, of automation in dairies. And maybe automation generally, I don't know. Yeah, we had the chat. It was a really, really good, good question. Um, and it just struck me at that time when she mentioned it. Uh, and I was comparing that to the sort of the um, experience I had with Chris Eggett at Oxhill Organics there a couple of years ago, milking his his cows. Um, so the question was really around, you know, 
I can't remember exactly how Brittany framed it up, but basically automation in dairies and kind of that. That's right. The question to her was, you know, what was sort of some of the call it sustainable or regenerative practices or progressive practices and things she'd learnt very recently in that course. And she just mentioned that, you know, one of them was kind of automation, which I guess in some ways is uh, maybe making things a bit safer in those environments. Um, it certainly takes people out of those environments, which I think is one of the not-so-good things about them. Um, and that was my point that, you know, if we automate dairies, and I I'm no expert in automation of anything really, especially dairies, but <clears throat> what I do know in conventional or, or sort of, you know, dairies which require people in them, um, especially Chris Edgars, is that it's a it's a point of engagement with those animals. And in Chris's case, because he's using he's organic, um, he doesn't use urea, he's not using chemicals, it's it's a very clean and natural environment for those cows to live and grow and eat. Their behaviour is absolutely exceptional. <clears throat> I'm saying that because in when he was a conventional dairy farmer they, he said, you'd literally go into battle every morning and night when you go to go to um, milk them. You'd put your apron on. You'd sort of have to psych yourself up because he knew he was going into that herringbone dairy, and the cattle were cranky. They'd kick and they'd shit all over him, and you know it was a real, real challenge every day or twice a day. And he put it down to, um, uh, well, once he'd changed, he changed his a lot of his management and had something to compare it to. He said, well, it's, the differences were that he took out the urea and other chemicals and other inputs. And he's, and I don't doubt him for a second that, you know, when those animals weren't, weren't eating grass and pasture that had been had urea on it, which sort of, as some people say, you know, makes the pasture very hot, you know, <clears throat> that high nitrogen level and the ammonia and, I mean, the shit from dairy cattle that's using a lot of urea in their pasture is so strong, so much ammonia in that. Um, that's generally just generally gets wasted. That um, their behaviour is is very poor. You know, they kick and they shit and they carry on. There's more more incidence of disease, and you know they've got to use more iodine. Actually, I don't think Chris uses any iodine at all. It's very clean, very simple setup. <clears throat> and so when Brittany asked me about that, I just compare. I just thought, well, what's Chris doing? And he's doing a wonderful job. You know, what would it be to automate that? Well, cost a lot of money. Um, it would take people out of the equation and that in itself I think is a bad thing, not just for the community and engaging people and <clears throat> people being supported and working on farms and what they bring to that, but also for the cattle to have to lose that point of engagement with the humans who are managing them through that landscape. Um, I think that's very detrimental to the relationship of the animals and, and the people, which I'm you know, becoming more and more appreciative of and aware of as time goes by. And so there's a cost, there's a human interaction that kind of doesn't even happen anymore if everything's automated. Um, uh, and and it, you know, I guess there's a safety, you know, people do it for safety reasons, like you know, you know, cattle aren't going to get kicked. Uh, I mean, sorry, um, you know, the, the, the attendees, the people working in those dairies don't get kicked and it's all you know, streamlined, it's all wonderful. But <clears throat> and maybe think, well, what's... What, What's causing those cattle to kick, or why? Why do we need to improve safety? And you know, what what is the point of the of the automation? If it costs a lot of money, gets dairy farmers potentially more in debt. I'm sure there are figures around how efficient and wonderful it is that sort of offsets the cost of getting it set up. You know, you're saving labour. But as I said, <clears throat> you know, 
is automation away forward for dairy people, <coughs> excuse me, ones that are probably potentially doing it tough anyway and already have probably a lot of debt to then go into more debt to put these automa- auto- um, automatic um, uh, autonomic systems in place. As I said, it gets rid of humans out of the equation, doesn't support community, doesn't support the, you know, the, the, um, uh, the individuals in that environment, in that, in that community, in that business, and losing touch with the cows um, and that relationship. Like, is automation actually achieving achieving the right things? And I just thought, well, you know, instead of thinking, oh, automation is the way forward and that's going to be better and make us more money and make it safer, it's like, well, maybe change your whole project altogether. Look at what the cattle are eating. Look at the behaviour they've that, that, that is they have in those conventional kind of milking situations in the pasture, in the paddock, in the in the in the dairy dairy stalls, and those in the herringbone setups and whatever they whatever they do, big big circular ones. Maybe <clears throat> maybe don't invest a whole lot of money in that. Maybe just stop doing a few things and change what they do, and you know do some of the thing, wonderful things that Chris Eggett's doing, and that might save you a whole lot of money. Keeps people in the in that business, gives them a sense of purpose, retains the relationship between cows and humans, which is really important, not just for milking, but in the paddock. And you know, just sort of just looking at it very differently. You know, it's it's a bit like it feels like automation is trying to address a symptom. Um, going and doing what Chris Eggert does is addressing you know, the root cause of things, animal behaviour, milk quality, um, safety. You know, just a thought. I thought it was a great sort of thing to bring up and, you know, ponder that one, if you will. Um, I certainly have been. And that might have been a long long, long way around saying something pretty simple. But I just just another example, I think, of, you know, we're all, you know, I think generally um, as farmers we kind of sometimes miss the point entirely. Um, a, a technology is presented by someone who's going to make money out of it and, you know, it's solving a problem, but is it really solving the, the, the root cause? And we go, we've got to have it, you know, whether it's peer pressure, um, a sense of trying to just keep progressive and keep up with others, I don't know. But, I, like, you know, it just brought me back to sometimes stopping doing things can be the... <clears throat> be the the best way to get get ahead. Um, anyway, I'm no expert in milking and and use of automation in those scenarios, but just really got me thinking about: is it really, you know, is it that simple that we, the automation is going to cure all our problems and make dairy farmers more financially viable? Don't know. And if it does, is that going to be at the at the at the you know the cost of rural communities generally, people in business? Anyway, it got me thinking. I get you thinking a bit too, hopefully. Not that you don't think enough of other things anyway. Um, what else? Angelica's episode came out last, just a couple of days ago, so you'll be hearing this in a couple of, you know, a week or so after it came out. Some wonderful feedback. I really, really appreciate that people bothered to <clears throat> make comments and send notes and things just to say, you know, love you to hear us banter, love you to hear a story, inspiring story, um, and just, yeah, because Andrew, she was a bit nervous about it and didn't think she'd probably kind of, you know, covered things as well as she could have and I just didn't agree at all. I said, you are amazing. 
And she is, and people, you, the listeners, wonderful listeners, seem to resonate with that and really appreciate your feedback there. Now, getting on to my next guest, uh, Rose Kentish is that guest, and I caught up with Rose at the Sepults, um Field uh, Road um, Distillery <clears throat> in Sepultsfield in Barossa, um, and, and we met there because she uses Christine, who is this amazingly beautiful um, still copper still that came from Europe. I can't remember where Rose said it came from. She might have mentioned it in the episode. But certainly from, I think, Eastern Europe somewhere. And it is just amazing. It's um, And she is that produce, um, uh, uh, you know, distilled um, um, drinks, al- alcoholic beverages, um, gin being one of them. Uh, Full Circle is her brand and she is fantastic. Um, we sat and chatted about her. Actually, I was trying to. I meant to catch up with. I wanted to catch up with Nick Kentish, her brother. And Nick was away for the week, and she said, "Look, you know, Rose is far more interesting than me." <laughs> no, he didn't say that, because um, Nick is a very interesting guy too. I will track him down when he's not too busy. Um, and so I caught up with Rose, and her her, her journey is amazing. From farmer to um, well, grew up on a farm. You know, producing some award. You know, her, her wine is award winning. She's an award winning winemaker, and turning her hand to different things along the way, um, connecting landscape with taste and perfume and floral hints of this and that. It was just wonderful. I love the language she used to sort of describe and um, and and how she creates and because sort of and creates things that are reflective of landscape. It's just wonderful. So here we are. Oh, it's the longest rant I've had for a long time. Um, Rose Kentish on the regenerative journey, and I hope you enjoy listening to this interview as much as I did recording it with Rose Kentish. And this goes to the world. Nice. Rose Kentish, welcome to the regenerative journey, and welcome to the Sepultsfield Road Distillery. Yeah. Which is where we're sitting, and we're looking out at the road. <laughs> and beyond. <laughs> and a beautiful cloud ash. Um, or a row of them, and I don't know what this chappy is here, this gum. Mm. Um, and we've chosen this spot because this is your your one of your places of work. Yes. Um, tell me, what does it what does it mean to you to be? I mean, not necessarily looking out at that cloud ash, but just sort of here in the Barossa, having this business, having this wonderful form of um, being able to create. Things. What does it mean to you to be sitting here, not necessarily just because I'm here and we're having a chat, but just sort of the sense of landscape, place, geography, vibe? Yeah. Does it feel good? Yeah, it does. I think um, for me as a maker, the land dictates a huge amount around my work process, the selection of botanicals that I'm working with, the grains that I'm working with, um, the, the weather, the environment... Um, we were talking about seasons uh, and the influence of what grows around me and how I can bring that into what I'm making, which is all around driving flavour. So can we get back to that too? Yeah. Yeah, cool. I'm making note of that. So, um, yeah, it was really great that you were in the Barossa and you could come and visit me in, in and around the work that I'm doing because I'm a bit of a nomad as a maker and I make various things by foraging out of the Adelaide Hills the Barossa and McLaren Vale, primarily those regions that I've got to know very well. 
and I'm lucky enough to be able to come and work on some of the great stills mm. in South Australia and um, working with great equipment means you can also make um, great product. Uh, obviously what you're putting in has got to be the right kind of quality of ingredients and uh, my philosophy is all around picking fresh and pick, picking seasonally and working with what's abundant here around us because those things are in the air. The oils are in the air. It's come from the land around us. And that's, that's I think, was seeded really early on for me as growing up on a farm, but then also um, practising as a winemaker. You're obviously very much driven by the land where you're growing the grapes and making wine and that whole concept of terroir and how it's just so integral to making when you're making craft um, and bespoke level of um, of beverages. Because I hadn't actually thought about that till just then. You, like well, grapes and wine is obviously you know that's that's a that's a word terroir that comes up a lot and totally get what that is because the ingredient is generally just the grape. You know that's so there's that sort of line of sight between where it's grown and um, and the, the final product and the the expression of that. Uh, I guess with a with a gin where you've got number of different herbs and ingredients, I guess that's kind of a mixed terroir, isn't it? Yeah, it can be, absolutely, because, um, you know, there's hardly any juniper grown in Australia. So Is that na- right? Yeah, so Is naturally that- you're going to be looking to, um, uh, you know, European sources, which is where a lot of it comes from. So a lot of production of gin or any beverages around the world People are sourcing. People are sourcing um, spices. You know, so the spice trade aspect of it's really huge. So you can just buy in bags of all sorts of things you want, pile them in, put the still on, and off you go. That's one way of making. I'm actually motivated quite differently by. Certainly, you need to have um, coriander seed and and juniper in there for it to be um, on its path to being gin. But beyond that, I'm really interested in then building flavour around what's growing around me. So that expression of terroir essentially, but through spirits um, and through brewing, through winemaking, that whole concept that flavour that is familiar to us, flavour that grows in abundance, it's meant to be here uh, because the botanicals are growing well here and over you know quite a nice seasonal length of time means that we've got this access to familiar flavors that work with the food that we're eating that are growing here usually part of in when I'm picking and and working with supplies it's not monoculture it's part of a more broader growing program so it might be from anything as small as gardens through to sort of multi crop spaces um so that it's within context both from a farming or production perspective but also in terms of flavour and what you're smelling, what you're eating in the food, how we're seasoning our food, how all of those things work together means that the flavour is going to work on your palate. I guess that's how we eat and we we, um, we smell, isn't it? Like when we step outside, we're not just smelling. We might have some, some more um, overpowering smells. But it's always going to be a mix, isn't it? You know, Absolutely. A mix of herbs, and you'll, you'll trees. know that when yeah. you come to a region, you'll step out of the car mm. probably when you first arrived in the Barossa and it'll smell mm. different. It has a sense of place through how it smells. And for me, that I've always been very in tune with scent and aroma. And now to the 
point where I've been studying perfumery out of the south of France oh. through COVID online at night, through the night, cool. live, which is pretty cool because it have you, have you read the book, Perfume? Yeah, a long time ago yeah. with Patrick Suskind. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's really – aroma, I think, is like 40% of the experience of flavour, so it's a really key part. And certainly when you're making wine or beer or spirits or liqueurs, which I'm in the middle of today. Mm. Literally. You, literally, you, you, I'm you, covered got, in – I'm so sticky. I'm, yeah. Mm. Um, but the, the, the fragrance is beautiful and that is the most alluring part. That's the thing that comes to you first is how something smells when it floats out of the glass or mm. out of the bottle mm. and it's the thing that makes you want to sip. It's the thing that attracts you and makes you think about what you're going to eat with that, you know, those kind of things. So to me, aroma is just such a key, heady kind of attraction point um, and so I've got an absolute fascination with that and I think I always have. I'm just starting to build structure and mm. training around what I'm knowing intuitively and deeply attracted to. Talking about that, I, I, we've still gone off on a tangent, which is, always happens and it's fine, <laughs> because I want to get back to your early days, you know, farm life and so on. Um, when a couple of years ago I was part of a short-lived um, whiskey group, yes. and we'd meet every month or two and sip whiskey and so on. Short-lived, that's not good. No, it was more to do with the guy who organised it was sort of he was in the area, then he left and it sort of he was probably a key um you know, key person p- key person p- key person risk right there. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> but every time we'd have, you know, gins from it might be Japan, it might be bourbons or something. Anyway, it was, mm. but it was quite it was serious in insofar as, you know, we took seriously because we just really wanted to get that the whole experience and the the way you probably know this, the way you smell the whiskey, you'd sort of run it from one nostril to the other. Is that something you do with gin? You sort of this is it's quite it looks quite silly because you're there sort of going and you and you run it across and I don't know what the difference you know maybe one left brain right brain or something. <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah. Like, I've not heard of that. No, well, I, so okay. So um, my question was: do, Does that do you do does, does smelling a, uh, like a, a gin or a liqueur? Is that you know part of the the process of consumption, if I can use yeah. a horrible word? Yeah, sure. Yeah. So is that and taking thing? your time? Mm. I think it's about just enjoying the aroma first and thinking about what's the most phenolic, what's the most vibrant, vital. So the aspects that are floating out of the glass, Mm. what's coming at you first. You think about a perfume and the top notes of a perfume, it's what's come at you when that person's walking towards you and they're still quite a way away but you can smell them already. Mm. It's like what's floated out. It's vibrating at this level. It's kind of highest, brightest note, which will be gone pretty quickly it's not what's left on the person's body 10 hours later and it's not what sits with the main sort of point of that aroma and flavor but it flavor when it's drinks but it's there's definitely different aspects of scent it's not just one block or one thing layers it's layers and how that and how that lifts out and so it's quite a a a fascinating art form Um, but there's lots and lots of science around it because it's how things leave, how mm. long they stay around for, and it's also how long it sits on your palate for and then what happens long after you've swallowed well, and what's left on your palate. Well, that's just like nature, and isn't it? And then continuing to breathe that through yeah. and breathe with your mouth open so you're actually smelling and breathing, smelling and breathing. It's quite know, dynamic, it's like, isn't it, that yeah. whole experience? Because nature is not like hits you with a block of something and then it disappears. There's, there's yeah. residual and there's the whiffs of and that sort of thing. Um uh, where was I going with that one? We, oh, I had a question right there and I should have just left it. 
Uh, it might come back. It was about um, the small. Oh, no. So again, we'll get back to farming. Um, <laughs> the like, I I used to wear. Um, <laughs> I was going to say perfume. I didn't wear perfume as a young man. You mm. know, um, there Cologne was things or. like cologne or aftershave. Or back in the day, it was. Um, oh, there was a terrible one, but everyone menage. That's what. I <laughs> <laughs> it was a horror story, but the best thing about it—you could light it and it was—it would, you know, yep. flame things up. Use it for potato guns and stuff. Um, but that was what we did. We 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 had an artificial, and it was really artificial mm. um, smell, you know, because we thought that was going to, you know, for whatever reason, cover up s- smell our own smell or or enhance it or something. Mm. And then over the years, I kind of got to a point and said, I actually I'm a bit over it, you know. There was, and then as you mature, you you smarter kind of colognes and things. But then many years ago, I got to the point of going, you know what, I actually don't, I don't feel comfortable putting, uh, even if it's kind of a natural smell on me, you know, mm. I just felt, felt not comfortable covering up my natural smell. And I'm not, you know, I'm hairy, but I'm not that smelly. And so I wasn't like creating a riot in the world because I walk around smelly. Yeah. But you know what I mean? That sense yeah. of, you know, I just didn't feel that um, I needed to or wanted to, um, you know, as part of going out or, going to meet people, you know, putting a cologne on. And that's no, not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing. It's just sort of, I guess... Um, well, for a lot of people, it's a huge part of their identity. That's right. how they smell, isn't and then, it? And you, and you remember, it's this whole mm. memory thing. I remember mm. mum telling me when I was studying at school or uni and she, she just told me about the whole memory smell thing. You know, I said, now... And mum's a bit of a card and she said, now when you're learning about your maths or your biology or whatever, just have a pair of old smelly socks there and then smell it. Right, and when you're learning it, and then when you're in the exam, just get the same smelly socks, and it'll come back. It'll help you trigger your memory. <laughs> your That's memory. great. But That's even great. the smells are quite a memory thing, aren't they? Yeah, definitely. And when you're making um, or judging or recalling lots of things that you've tasted, memory's obviously essential um, to be able to taste something and say, "Oh, last vintage, it was more this or that," or you know, that mm. just how you layer and stack. Um, all of that information and then recall it, you know, it's massive. Um, and there are some people who can do that on an extraordinary level, yeah. Um, but certainly how you smell is strongly related to your identity and so for people who want to be more of something or more like something they're going to wear, more of something, I, I'm like you I, and it's my reasoning is more pragmatic in that, I think when, you know, I was, before I started making wine, I used to wear Givenchy and, you know, various brands that I loved as, that I was trying out as a young young woman. But what I realised pretty quickly as I started making is that that got in the way. So I actually haven't been able to wear perfume and I'm an absolute advocate of, of bespoke perfumery, but I can't, I have to choose the moments when I wear it and that's never when I'm working because it interferes with everything that's going on around me. And um, so it doesn't really work, which is ironic because it's something I'm very passionate about, but I can only wear it when I'm not working and when I'm out and about in the world uh, as opposed to... So I almost need to do it as if I'm getting dressed up, that kind of concept. Uh, I'll wear some sort of balm or or something that I like, but it won't be a daily thing because I'm working every day and needing to remove distraction of aroma so that I can really smell what's going on in the glass. Well, that's actually, yeah, that's a good point because you need a, a clear palate 
Yeah. That's what, yeah, with no distraction. And also just thinking about, you know, you go to you go out and you dress up and there's clothes you do and don't wear and then there's when you're at work it's the opposite mm. kind of thing. You know, you don't mm. you don't wear your your finest dresses to work and things are the same thing. I guess you you know, my uniform at work doesn't include, you know, perfume. Yes. But when I go out that kind of is part of your identity. Yeah. Let's get back to um uh in, go back in time to because I was introduced to you um, very kindly by your brother Nick, who yes. I have known for many years, and give him a quick plug. He doesn't deserve it, but I'm going to give it to him anyway. <laughs> we I met Nick up in um, many years ago in Queensland at a property uh, tool and billa, which is up near Mitchell, and a cousin of ours, and we we organised him and Chuck Keeley to come up for a. Um, low-stress stock handling course. Yeah, great. And he took it and it was fantastic. And then sort of some association through with RCS Australia there sort of over the years and, and then Nick's obviously has and is working with them closely, which is wonderful. And then hadn't seen him for a long time, ran into him at the RCS conference a couple of years ago, just very quick hello. Um, and then I thought, well, I'm, in, I'm here. I'll try and track him down for an interview. And he said um, uh, that you'd be much better than him anyway. So he wasn't available this week. <laughs> he said, you're better looking and much more entertaining. So I said, okay, thank you. That was lucky. So here we are. So I have to thank Nick for the, um, for the, for the, the, the tip there. Um, and he just gave me a 30-second bio view. So that was enough to, to get me going. Well, that's, that's great. And then, so thank you for your time. And that's kind of how we got to met. So I actually don't know much about you. I don't, I don't always know my guests, but um, that really doesn't matter. Sometimes it's actually better when you don't. Mm. Um, I do limited research because mm. I kind of like the conversation to go where it needs to go. Mm. But I do know a little bit about you, having you are Nick's sister, of course, and that you grew up on a farm. Yes. And there were potatoes involved. There from were. What I rem- <laughs> from what I remember. <laughs> so tell me about sort of the your early days as a as a uh, in farming. What where where and how and what was that for you? Yeah, um, I'm, an, I'm the youngest of four children. My parents had four kids in five years, so that was fairly intense, it's I think. Truth. And um, we grew up on a farm in the southeast of South Australia, just north of Mount Gambier, so very wet, cold, um, perfect, great spud-growing land. But we also, um, my, my father had a number of different crops and a cropping program, so um, other vegetables like onions, carrots, things like that, and then broader cropping and then also... Um, stock, uh, so sheep and cattle, and it was pretty idealistic childhood in that um, we were given lots of chores and, and a lot of physical responsibility around husbandry of animals and things like that, but we also got to ride motorbikes and horses and, you know, our, that land was our domain to ride and roam and enjoy. Um, you know, we had to do things like where we we didn't have milking cows, but we had a dairy nearby, so we had to, our job. You know, one of my key jobs was to ride the motorbike up with an empty bucket and come home with the bucket between my knees, and then on a bike, uh, on a motorbike, and then get home and skim the cream. Did and the bucket have a lid? Butter. Yeah, lift the lid is really important. <laughs> I learned that. I learned that probably the first go is to make sure that lid yeah, is right. clipped on well. Um, but get home, skim the milk, make the butter, um, so churn the butter. Um, and just kind of how you're part of a system, how you're part of your chore and how that connects to someone else's chore. So, you know, it's that and feeding the chooks and, uh, you know, my mum had a small Romney um, sheep um, flock 
just right next to her and, you know, she t- taught us how to um, card wool and spin and do some of those things. Now, I don't use those skills, but I have an idea of the system and how each of us sort of fitted into making all of that happen. She also used to do quite great things in the 70s and 80s, like take avocados and, and dye the wool, you know, different colours with all sorts of different fruit and veg and really things that she was growing in the garden. Yeah. yeah, cool. What sort of goes pinky colour um, from the seed and for the stone. And, um, yeah, so I, I think certainly there was an, a real awareness. Um, I don't think we really understood it kind of almost felt like the 50s, even though we were in the 70s, 80s, in that it was just quite quite protected and whatever. And then at 13, where each of us, one at a time, was sent off to boarding school. So I was the last one uh, remaining on the farm. In was, Adelaide? Uh, in north of Mount Gambia. So okay. was, no, we didn't. We went to school in Victoria, went to uh, Timbertop and then on right. to Geelong Grammar. So, you know, again, there's a system there. You're... You have to do a series of chores as part of that system. You don't do your chores. You let the whole team down in terms of chopping wood and keeping the boilers going for your um, hot water. Hamish is an old timber-top long boy. Ah, nice, yeah. nice. So, um, yeah, certainly understanding the cycle of things and um, knowing what happens when you let it down has been sort of probably an ongoing <laughs> um, lesson, lessons in life. The good lesson, like, was that of value to you? Was that an important part of... It is. I find it hugely valuable now. And, in fact, um, you know, we've got a farm on KI now, which we Mm. bought a couple of years ago, and my husband Sam is heading over there, you know, pretty regularly or staying over there pretty regularly because we're getting ready to build an off-the-grid spot, house, and... um, so, you know, we've in, in every house you've got an ecosystem and on every farm you've got an ecosystem, you've got a natural system of chores and jobs and, and things that yeah. things start to fall over pretty quickly when you're not moving with that. And I've found even down at our house down at Middleton on the south coast here when Sam's away and I need to step up and do all of the jobs and to keep all of that ecosystem. It's just something right now I've been really aware of even on quite a domestic level. When, but when you're at home and you've got bees and chooks and, you know, quite quite a lot of those things happening just within your garden that you value, veggies, you know, all sorts of things that, that one person breaks out of that cycle to do something else and, you know, that slack needs to be picked up. And I think, I think systems and ecosystems and dependency is a good thing, but it also means that you have to understand the whole system and where you can share it, it's great. <laughs> Because doing it on your own is bloody hard work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's a that's a. I mean, that's the thing. It's it's um uh, that all come. I mean, we've just done a couple of days at the Koleski farm and three generations. So John is six generations. Kim and the boys Tony and Troy are seventh, and then their grandchildren, um, thirteen of them, are eighth generation. Mm. You know, and they've been growing wine or growing grapes there. Mm. Uh, 1875, I think the first grapes were planted, and they've been there since 1854 or something. Mm. And that is fascinating. And the way they work together, mm. you know, although we left there and Kim and a bit of rain, Kim and, and, and John, father and son, are in there, you know, making a whole lot of stuff in the shed. Mm. Like it's wonderful. And John, so you won't mind me saying this, he's 78, I think, you know, he's fit as a fiddle. Mm. You know, they eat good food, it's, it's their philosophy and everything. So mm. back to your point about, you know, the dynamics of a farm and the cooperation, like that is a, 
that they've sort of almost got like a gold standard because they've got a business, their farming business supplies obviously the grapes to their um, their, their winery. And so, you know, literally from paddock to glass, mm. you know, they're involved and, mm. and, and the whole family involved. Mm. It's, it's just wonderful. So Yeah, I think that um, where you've got multi-generational learning and multi-generational systems, that, that's extraordinary because you've got a pattern of behaviour and the trick is to adjust and, and change with, with the times but hold on to the golden things, hold on to the things that you know have worked all the way through. And, um, and there's elements of that, I think, that I've taken into the pattern of learning that I'm understanding and rolling out through my making program, whether it be through Spark Brews or, or um, making spirits and liqueurs or making wine or even building into perfume. You've got this way of working and an intuition and an approach that's been instilled in you through your, you know, how you're raised and your grandparents and your great-grandparents and all of that learning. But you've also got to adjust with new information, new knowledge, and I know that multi-generational um, scenarios, sometimes it's hard to adjust and it's hard to change. So, but with a newer scenario, so like with our brewing, we, we've looked very early on in the in the life of the company to go... I'll just chase you. I'll chase you. You're very. You, 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 you're just. You haven't got any Italian in you, have you? <laughs> I'll sit very, on my hands. You're just. I'll sit on my hands. No, it's fantastic. No, no, no don't. Go, oh, no, I love it because it's. It's another way of expression. Yeah. So I, to go to go paddock to glass. Um, Come on, use, takes, use those hands. Don't let, don't stop. <laughs> often takes uh, years and years to get there, and um, we've pretty quickly adjusted to that process by creating and developing the relationships where the relationships didn't exist. So really knowing the farmer that's growing the barley, the place where we get it malted to pull it through in order to make beer, in order to make wash, to make whiskey, those things. So I think where you don't have multi-generations of family within a particular aspect of work, you need to create that life cycle within your work so that it's sustainable, it's meaningful, you actually understand the impact of your actions and what you're making from the ground to the glass or the ground to the plate, whatever it is that you're making. And so I think it's incredible to have that multi-generational family scenario, but I think you can take learnings from that and create that within a business that's not based on family, that's based on a passion for what you're making and what you're doing. And what you're doing is, and we'll get to more of the detail, but, I mean, I'm just thinking... You're, you're an individual who has a passion and with some help from others, of course, and based on your, you know, your kind of experiences and, and how you've grown as a person, you know, from farming through to wherever else we'll get to, um, you're the, you've been a catalyst for a, a building a community. You know, community of bar- like if you know, I'm sort of tra- not drawing a long bow, but I'm, I'm extrapolating a little bit. But I mean, I imagine that some of your barley growers would not have had anything to do with some of the other people in your community had you not kind of created the the forum and the opportunity for that to happen. So, and that layer of community, and they're obviously involved with other communities, and you are, mm. but that sort of rich tapestry and overlap, it just creates, um, you know, geographically and socially a wonderful, you know, resilient community in a way. Yeah, I think so. I think you're right that, um, you know, 
if you're growing and your focus is on the land, that doesn't mean you're not deeply interested in the value adding or the, the aspect at the other end, but you, you're so focused on what you're doing on the land and that's where your attention should be. But certainly what we're finding, no matter the grower, so depending on whichever product that we're making, is that we try and have that beautiful stretch for them and them understanding the final product and being able to be part of an attend, show up, taste, learn at any step in that process because that's sharing that knowledge, that flavour, and then they're thinking back to their farm and how they might be able to continually improve and, and develop what they're doing, but they also feel part of something. And I think feeling part of something is around that fabric that you're talking about and that deep connectivity that everyone wants really is to be integrated into something that's bigger than them, that they that they love, that they can see how they're part of this sort of long line or big circle, whatever uh, you want to, ha- however you visually think about it. But um, uh, I, I think connection through growing, through making is a, a really wonderful um, thing to not only offer but be a part of. So I don't feel like we're the... We instigate a lot of things, but we also are deeply excited by a lot of what we're seeing. And I I use that all the time when I see things growing. Like I just made some quince syrup, which I'm using to um, sweeten up a Rosso vermouth that I've made for the winter. And, you know, that's just been a series of steps where, you know, my quince tree was overflowing. I needed to pick them in the moment and uh, poach them down and treat them exactly how they needed to be honoured and treated in order to capture that. And then strained off the syrup and popped that away and thought, I'll use that for something. I didn't know where it was going, just I'll use that for something. Poach quinces in the freezer, great. I'll use them for cakes and things like that. Quince syrup. I'm looking at a Rosso vermouth. How can I build an X factor into this? How can I integrate something that is local, relevant, delicious, unique, whatever? Added some of that and just went, whoa, Mm. that's gorgeous. So you don't always know where where you're ending uh, when well, I don't. When I start something, but I, I, as long as each step in the process is is beautiful, and you you're bringing different you know producers and things along on that journey, and then they see where you end. It's quite collaborative, I think, and hopefully, when people taste the finished product, they're quite inspired, flavour inspired, and um, that it brings them joy and reward of feeling a sense of you know like achievement and success and. Well, those overused words, but sort of that reward for their hard work, you know, that you've yeah. you've you've respected, and it's you know, you know, we do we you know teach biodynamics and sort of in the world of Steiner, and he talks about external cultivation, which is obviously you know the quince tree in the in the yard in the paddock, and it's doing its stuff, and then and then the respect that's given to it as it 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 enters the the, the world of internal cultivation in the kitchen, yeah, you know? and then yeah. as you say, and it's lovely to hear you say that you know sort of being respectful and expressing, letting it express itself, express its quinceness. Mm. Um, can you make liqueur out of, like, quince syrup? Could, would you, what, yeah. We have to go through the process, but yeah. is it, can you just go, I've got quince syrup, I'm going to make some liqueur out of it? Or you got to... Uh, yeah, you can. Um, I made a quince gin and I sort of swore I'd never do it again because I blocked the filter so badly oh, and okay. trying to pull it through. You know when you make quince paste and it's glutinous, it's, it's fantastic. Yep. It, holding itself together. You imagine that jelly, mm. that gel just clogged up the um, yeah, right. the filter. So it was a bit of a pain. But um, I'm hoping I'm not going to have the same experience this time around. <laughs> but, yeah, look, you can either macerate in in the alcohol that you've made, whether it be a grape or a grain-based alcohol. You could 
macerate the quinces in there and essentially preserve them and extract flavour and then add your sugar to drop the alcohol <coughs> level because it's already fortified. You need to drop it down in, in, and sweeten it into a liqueur. Or you could, you could go the other way where you've created a, a quince syrup and then you fortify it, you strengthen it with the alcohol that you're interested in. Okay. So cool. you, you could go either way. Mm. And, in fact, when I, I first started learning to distill on the island of Corsica, so uh, I make wine each year, usually, when we're not in a pandemic, um, on the island of Corsica and in Provence, as well as in Shut South up. Australia. That yeah. sounds cool. It's really cool. And that's where like terroir tread really... next time? You know, did you do it? <laughs> the you... amount of people that have offered to carry can... my bags is extraordinary. <laughs> can you no, still I don't do often it, often get grape, grape trotting with us, but yes. <laughs> no, uh, no, I've got big feet. I'll, <laughs> Perfect. I'll be good I need for platforms. <laughs> um, yeah, look, it's, it's fantastic. And what I love about working over there is it you can't just rest on your laurels of what you learn here because so much is different, not only techniques but also the terroir and what, what varieties you're using. Like You might as well just turn it all up on its head. Uh, and that's what I loved about it. I just threw myself a cha- into a challenge in 2010 and moved my four kids and husband over to France for a year and started that process of making rosé in Provence and then a rare white and red wine on the island of Corsica and then bringing them back to Australia each year and sort of showing what I'd learnt and, and how that was tracking and sharing my love of what I'd learned. Um, but when I was over on Corsica, we used to um, take the grape marks, so the leftover seeds and skins and things like that, and re-ferment those and create more alcohol from them. And so essentially make, make a wash and then pull it through the still a couple of times. And the stills are really basic, sort of copper alembic still, um, and so learning to just take cuts uh, with no indicators anywhere, no temperature gauges, no alcohol readers, whatever, you're just truly, totally based on palate and flavour and building confidence over the years to do that and then selling that back to the Corsicans for them to make their own liqueurs and things. So we would create the alcohol that they would then go and macerate their abundant crop of fruit. You know, they'd, they'd do their own thing with it, which is... Fantastic, and um, so that was a really great sort of teeth cutting experience over sort of nine, ten years before coming back and actually starting to commercially make vodka, gin, whiskey, those things here. Um, and I do better when I learn through learning and hands on and doing. That's how I've come to wine making and um, also distilling, and then backing it up with the science and and the study about. Uh, I'm I'm quite tactile, hence using my hands. Yeah, like. no, it's awesome. And uh, learning through that way, and, and that's traditionally in in Europe. You know, it used to be how you learn, always anyway. And in in fact, not just limited to Europe, around the world. On the tools, the study came later. Did they? Did the, did the guys over there, the the, the natives, um, so to speak? You were you were a foreigner. Did that? Were they okay with that? You know, we did they kind of go? Oh, this is cool. You know, and or were you kind of frowned upon a bit for a while? Um. The Corsicans are quite different culturally to the mainland French, even though they're under French rule. They're quite independent spirits uh, and have been taken over by uh, a lot of, you know, Italy and Spain and France over the years. The, you know, Napoleon was Corsican, so he that was, kind yeah. of fighting spirit is still there yeah. within are they the, short, the are, they, are they all short like Napoleon? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's probably... Do they have their hand in their, in their coat the whole time? <laughs> 
But so certainly, I mean, now I'm so um, embraced and I, I adore the family I work with and um, and they, right from the start, were, were hugely embracing of, of me as a foreigner um, and we had a mutual friend. So that was the trust connection in the first place for me to even be able to come into their home and work beside them and make my wines in their winery with their fruit, um, with the help of their pickers, etc., and making my decisions, which are quite different from their decisions, but mean watching and learning what they're doing and why with that fruit at that time uh, based on taste, based on lab results, based on all the different factors that you've got at your fingertips. And then that they also were looking at me saying, what's she doing, why is she doing that, etc. So both really learning from each other. But certainly as we're going, so the person I make wine with um, over there, he's an excellent winemaker and he goes and make, um, consults and helps other wineries on the island. And so I got this extraordinary education right from get-go in visiting all these different wineries and tasting and checking the vineyards. And they would sort of, you know, the first year was certainly, who's this foreigner, was definitely the feeling I got. But the second year was like, oh, the Australian, she's shown up again. And the third year was like, I don't care what you think. <laughs> She's all right. To my friend, the winemaker, Rose, what do you think? Would you pick now? Yeah. Would, you know, what what do you think? Should I, you know, in terms of technique, have I done this correctly in the winery? Um, or being so proud to show me something that they, they were really excited by. So I've absolutely been embraced there and I've, I've really missed it the last couple of years because I haven't been, of course. So your French is pretty good? It used to be pretty good. It's pretty rusty now. It's like mm. a muscle, isn't it? Um, yes. Well, not, so not great at the minute. My, my, um, I understand um, much better than I speak. I always have, but, um, but certainly my speaking is, is, you know, crap. All my tenses are gone, <laughs> you know. But but it's about immersion, so I'll get back there and it'll, and it'll, it'll yeah. all just come trotting out again. Be you'll, fine. You'll pick it all up. Looking for more information to assist your regenerative journey? Come join Charlie and his guests around The Kitchen Table, an online community of supporters with exclusive access to the Regenerative Journey interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions, a chance to engage with other like-minded people and more. Go to www.charliearnett.com.au forward slash The Kitchen Table. And if you're not totally satisfied with the value of your membership and wish to cancel it within the first two months, we will give you a full 100% refund, no questions asked. Now let's get back to this week's episode. Um, let's get back to the farm because I'm kind of trying to draw the you know spuds to, I guess you can make it. Vodka out of spud, so there's some connection there. Yes. Um, so tell me, after boarding school um, at a young age, and what next? How was how was school? Was it kind of, you know, how did that influence you? Um, was it? I say your your siblings were there as well. I guess it was crossover. Yeah, a little bit of crossover. My sister was two years at, ahead of me at school, and I'm the youngest. So mm. Nick and my other, my other sister, so was well, well and truly gone by then. But um. Look, I think that the biggest impact on me was definitely the experience in the mountains for the year. Um, I, I didn't, even though I grew up on a farm, I, I wasn't a runner, I wasn't a um, camper, I wasn't all those things. 
And certainly that year as a 14-year-old, um, you, we were challenged with things I never thought you'd put any 14-year-old through in terms of runs, hikes through the Victorian Alps, um, mapping your own hikes, sorting out issues on the way with, with your hike, little hiking group that you'd selected, working out what makes a good selection in a person that you want to hike for six days with and what doesn't, and then being able to change that up each, each week, cutting wood just to keep the fires going in the school schoolrooms as well as in the, the unit that you all stayed in. Uh, so 16 people in a room with beds next to each other, so no privacy around that sort of thing. Um, and then running a half marathon by the end of the year, we're building up to that. So, you know, three, four runs a week, every week, come rain or shine, um, and then building that up. And I think what I, what it, and I've probably only really reflected on it as an adult in seeing those stepping stones of when it hurts, just you can still keep going. You can do so much more than you think you can do. Your capacity is so much greater. Um, and I certainly know that I pack a lot into my days and I get a lot of feedback from people that that's quite overwhelming or inspiring or whatever the <laughs> words that people use depending on how they feel about it, not really how I feel about it. But I think that that's a combination of growing up on the land with parents that I have that are extraordinary in terms of their energy level and what they would pack into a day and what they would do, whether it be my mother making bread and butter and all these things from scratch and people walking in the door and saying, sure, we've got enough food and then madly scrambling to make things stretch because 20 people suddenly show up for dinner. And so just that being on the fly and being able to create and make and and be hospitable and pull those things together because what's most important is the person sitting on the chair opposite you in the room and the, the dynamic conversation that's about to happen, not if you've got three spuds or two on your plate, you know, just kind of working all that through. And the same thing with, you know, with school, for me it was a pretty happy scenario but also deeply challenging uh, on a level that I wouldn't have experienced, you know, wouldn't have imagined as a 14-year-old I could do and I think that really set me up uh, on lots of levels. I've certainly got muscles that I wouldn't um, have developed um, unless I'd done that work but also mental muscle and um, I'm gutsy as all hell. So, um, and, and not reckless, there's a real difference. There's a passion and a drive that I've got and I think that's really been set up within me through through my parents and, the, you know, my father, while he might have been predominantly known as a potato grower, he, you know, he was doing extraordinary things through the 80s in terms of entrepreneurial approach to potato growing. So not only... Um, you know, as a 14-year-old designing one of the first potato harvesters. So he was a young, creative, entrepreneurial spirit. But right through to, you know, when I was away at boarding school, so kind of aware of what was going on. But, you know, he had um, staff that he popped in, you know, different Coles and Woolies around Australia doing cooking demonstrations, trying to take the humble spot and make potato cakes and potato pizza and all of these different things to show people how to elevate that experience and working with the CSR, CSIRO in terms of, you know, creating little packages, a bit like you buy cherry tomatoes with, with baby potatoes and he mm. developed this little butter, garlic, herb pod that when you put it in the microwave it gets a certain temperature and then at the right time burst once the spuds were cooked and then, you know, Fair cover them and... So he was doing these things, you know, way before his time, really, and um, and we grew up as if that was normal. Yeah. So you couldn't help but kind of 
that if that's normal, that, that's just what you take with you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. Um, it's definitely seeing something and then feeling like that. That somehow that's. I knew he was extraordinary. I knew my mum was ex- was extraordinary in their own way, but it was who they were, and so it just shows you what mm. is possible, I guess. And you're a sponge at that age too. Even <clears throat> you know, zero to seven is we imitate mm. everything. Yeah, you know everything, yep. and hopefully most of the imitation is from our mum and dad, and hopefully mum and dad are kind of. <laughs> Their behaviours doing the right thing. Doing the right thing. So the imitation is kind of what you yep. want to keep on. Um, but even seven to fourteen, Hamish, um, who you met before, we he um, he talks about in our biodynamic workshops um, many things. But one being like those who know and those who do. You know, there's always that. You know, reasonably My defined. Talks about that as well. Yeah, and that was part of why he said you talk to Charlie because you do. Yeah. He says, I, he knows, but I do, and I know things intuitively, but I don't know what he knows. Luckily, he's my brother, and we get to talk a lot and mm. walk the land together and talk about what we should try, and, and so I get the benefit of his knowledge. And the um, trick is to, you know, to have an impulse to be a, a knowing doer. Yeah. You know, because there's people who do a lot, but it's kind of um, not being critical, but, you know, it's um, not necessarily based in the knowing, which is actually going to be much better for them to have kn- to, to know. But there's also that sense of adventure, and you don't have to know everything. Like you know, perfect's no. the enemy of progress. So yeah, it's like, let's absolutely. not think we have to know it all before we can start. Absolutely, and I think we've we've definitely taken that approach um, on this farm that we bought on Kangaroo Island a couple of years ago. So it was burnt um, in the fires, and then we um, knowing that, but falling in love with the island and um, we'd sold our vineyard and we were um, really keen to get back to uh, farming again but perhaps in a different way and we didn't know at that stage what we might do in terms of farming but we were, we'd certainly been looking around and, um, you know, we've got this beautiful island off the south coast of South Australia. It's 50 minutes' drive to the ferry from where we live. Uh, within a couple of hours we can be be on the land and, um, and it... And it was crying out for for some restoration. It really had been scorched by the fires, and there was a lot of there's a lot of work to be done there. And we approach it without knowing everything, and we actually feel really comfortable about that because we're just really dealing with some fundamental stepping stones, and then watching, and then learning, and adjusting because we don't have any overhang of of what came before us or any of that sort of thing. We, um, Sam and I actually did some study under Bill Bennett years ago uh, around um, organic gardening and farming. It was a long time ago, maybe 30 years ago. And then on the vineyard that we had in McLaren Vale when I first started making wine in the mid, my mid-20s, uh, all through that time um, we were growing based on learning around biodynamic principles, not being accredited but just following practice. So we did some study and then... Cool. Um, and some practice and we even did some small things like created a, um, a permaculture garden sort of you know the, one of those coil based gardens where you try and understand how water works and where you plant different herbs and things based on the water flow and what can be drier and have drier feet for longer versus wetter and you know you, you don't always know what you're doing but you, you're having a go at doing what you just learned and seeing how that plays out 
And then now over on this land, which is about three 300 acres on the north coast of Kangaroo Island that's been badly burnt, there's this whole sort of regenerative and restoration program that we're giving ourselves mm. <laughs> and, and moving through that and thinking about there's things we'd like to do that we haven't even started in terms of water. Um, we're just starting with the idea of what, re- what actually remains in the soil since the fires and how we might build up um, uh, perennial seed, ba- you know, perennial grasses and, and um, building up the carbon again in the soil. And, um, and then we've just got a very small uh, flock of dorpers that we move around to just kind of keep that grass contained but also keep it re- keep on regenerating what's happening there and putting in fences to make sort of slightly smaller paddocks to be able to control that in a way I guess a version of cell grazing without being really too scientific about it but just being able to have some control of moving this small little flock around as we're trying to rebuild and regenerate the land the soil that's there it's got I think four dams on it so we're just looking now at how we might look at the movement of water beyond those dams um, to, again, build moisture back within the soil. KI is very, very dry, but we are on the wetter end. Um, so there's lots to learn and lots to think about, and we, we, we certainly um, we've, we've designed with Polly Harbison, an architect in Sydney, uh, a guest Polly house. Polly Harbison? Yeah, a guest house and a main I house. I used to know Polly Harbison. Yeah. So yeah. she's a great architect based in go. Sydney. Hello, Polly. You're out there. <laughs> so um, we're about to to start building a little guest house and then a main house, which are, you know, we don't have any services out there. So we're looking at um, the whole ecosystem of how that's going to work. And, of course, people have built off-grid for a long time now, but the, the technology is changing so fast. And how do we do this in a way that's really sustainable that's going to work within the, the, you know, the fact that we would love to have some Wi-Fi out there in order to be able to run our business wherever we are. We, you know, want to be able to have a hot shower. We, you know, there's some sort of fairly ba- what feel like basic needs now and um, how do we build that into an environment that, that's, that's beautiful but is also sitting really lightly on that land. Um, she's done a beautiful design. We're really excited. Sam's going to be doing a lot of the building himself with a lot of it's from stone that's on the land so we're trying to use things that are there so just moving them into a different space but really from from the from the farm we're looking to um to create the the, at least the thermal mass of the structure with with the stonework and um and to be really respectful to the land as well is the um was it a fair bit of timber on there, or pasture, kind of. Well, when the fire went through, I mean, what was left? Was it just nothing? Uh, there's, there was nothing in terms of pasture left, and mm. the timber. There's a, a, a lot of the she oaks, which are native there, burnt. Um, mm. But they also have started to regenerate. We've we've planted about three hundred trees. We've got another thousand um, coming that we'll plant this winter, um, and we'll just keep doing that. Um, a lot of the a lot of the um, grass trees and the eucalypts have regenerated. And the eucalypts look so strange that they're like Dr. Seuss now, you know, with all the regrowth happening in bunches. And it, it's quite strange and, you know, very black uh, trunks. And, and it's beautiful and it's tragic and it's 
and it's regeneration happening right in front of us. And um, and there's nothing like a fire to build respect as well in terms of how we're going to create something and love it and still be nimble enough um, when the next fire comes. That's a real tension event in the landscape, isn't it, a fire? Because it's, you know, there's the... Um, obviously, <laughs> removal of vegetation, but it's it's also a um, you know a really it's a I guess you'd call it a, it's a low point in the in the cycle of you know growth and the dynamics of it, and you know, it it simplifies things a hell of a lot. Um, however, what's those beautiful parrots there? Uh, they're gorgeous. What are they? It looks <laughs> like a superb parrot, but it's not because we got them at yeah, superb parrots at Burua. They look beautiful. Yeah, very similar. Um, being harassed by some noisy miners. Um, the where was I going with that? Uh, oh yeah, so then you know, so that's actually it's like a drought or a bushfire, and even a flood is is a is an opportunity for um, that succession to sort of start taking place again and letting nature um, run its course because at the end of the day, it knows what's be- what best is needed in that environment. Having said that, though, you know, doing some work with Stuart Andrews, you're familiar with Stuart and Peter Andrews' work, Natural Sequence Farming? Yes. You know, they are all um, about, um, uh, you know, accelerating that kind of process if you mm. if you choose to. And mm. so that's fascinating. Um, and somewhere like Kangaroo Island, where, as you say, there's not much rain, it's probably one of those. It's not much rain, but also there was a big timber planting project uh, quite a long time ago mm. without a, a succession plan. So without really uh, any planning for how they get the timber off the island and it's been a disaster. Um, it's and it's actually causing uh, the, a lot of these, the major event fires and the heat and the destruction from that has actually been through misplanning and mm. mismanagement, not through what should be happening, which is more managed um, and, and more minor fires, which people can manage themselves. Farmers are, are very good at doing that. And, in fact, there's been some changes to laws and things so that farmers can actually manage um, aspects of those fires, especially in the early stages mm. where they could have actually put that fire out if the law allowed them. Um, really? But the law. So <laughs> there's, there's, you know, there's a particular problem on KI, which <laughs> is definitely... Um, but lots of people are aware of and is, and is very current um, in terms of what's happening here in South Australia and trying to understand how do we deal with this timber and also now a lot of the timber's burnt, so how do you deal with it as burnt timber? And it's just a it's a big problem yet to be solved. I know there's some burnt pine timber in Victoria um, and probably southern New South Wales uh, was used to, because it was, wasn't good for, for structural timber because of its... Um, uh, the, the damage it was actually turned into um, sheets of of, of um, I don't know it was like chipboard or a sort of plyboard but yeah. it was fascinating I've seen it up at um, Crinklewood um, mm. at um, in the Hunter Valley mm. and um, it it from what I understand is is a really good add, value add for a, what would normally have been like a wasted um, a waste product. Let's get back to wine and grape growing and so schools finished. You at some point started making wine from old vines. Yes. Well, vines yes. in the McLaren Vale. Yeah, yeah. So um, I had a year after school up in central west Queensland on a station and that was definitely influenced cool. by my brother. Um, Which so, one, can you say? Which station? Uh, it was called Crosmore. Okay. Crosmore. It was between uh, Longreach and Mataburra. And I absolutely adored it. I had a year there. I was a cook and governess for a year. 
um, for the Mole family and uh, I was just teaching one, their daughter, um, one little girl, grade five. She hated school. She ducks the year. At the end of the year she was, um, I think because I wasn't that much older than her, to be honest, I was 17, <laughs> um, I just got her outside to where she loved to learn and then built math and science and those things into running and jumping and leaping the creek and riding as fast as you can on the horse and then working out the the science and the maths from that and things like that. And so I just found a way into her uh, love of learning in a way that made sense to her that that got the results and she was so proud of herself by the end of the year. And that also, I think, was the beginning of me really learning how to multitask mm-hmm. across, you know, putting, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner and morning and afternoon tea for the the all the workers and then having this little girl in school in the schoolhouse and running backwards and forwards to her and we just had one half hour session a day on school of the air on on the radio so that was the only kind of connection into community and and for me relief in a sense as a teacher or support um and the rest of it was just up to me to work through the curriculum that we'd been given and um get a good result for her at the end but I absolutely love that experience and it and it you know, we'd travel 10, 13 hours for a party. We just do, you just did anything. You'd jump in the net. I didn't have a car, but I stayed home one weekend for the whole year. I just had such a good time. And um, I just learnt a lot about community, a lot about showing up. Uh, I got rallied into doing all sorts of things, which was about the community, even though it was less about what I might want to do personally in terms of, um, you know, being part of various programs that support the community and then learnt real value from that. So that was that was very, very formative, I think, for me. Um, but after a year of that, and, and definitely influenced by my brother and also my sister, Ange, who was up there working, so I just knew that to be a fun thing, to go shake my shimmies out after boarding school and uh, look up and have a bit of a look at the world. But after a year, I was like, no, I'm really ready to get into uni, get my teeth into something so I actually came back to Adelaide because I, even though I was South Australian, I'd really not spent much time in Adelaide at all because we were in the southeast. So Melbourne's equal distance as Adelaide yeah, in right. terms of driving and my parents had sent us all to, to boarding school in Victoria. So we'd only come to Adelaide a few times. And I just thought I really liked that experience of going to Queensland and learning about who I was as a young woman at 17, 18 years old and, and working through... Um, that experience with great freedom of around identity and around just, you know, working this whole growing up adulthood, early adulthood thing out. And and so I applied to a couple of unis in Melbourne, Adelaide, um, Brisbane, I think, and, um, and I ended up deciding to go to uni in South Australia. And um, that's where I met my husband-to-be. So he was, uh, he's a few years older than me, about five years older than me, and he'd already um, has a degree in farm management out of Orange Ag College. Then he'd been travelling around the world for about two and a half years and he'd already done some um, uh, stints on uh, stations in the Northern Territory and things like that. So he'd, he'd come from, even though he'd grown up on the vineyard that we ended up buying, he wasn't really very rural and yet he was taking kind of rural programs um, which is interesting because that's actually been a, an ongoing theme then through our lives for both of us. Um, even though it's not, we're not primarily farmers, we're actually, I'm a maker and he's an artist, but the space that we value and the 
place that we want to contribute to have these networks and of an ecosystems which is based on growing and farming and that's been a constant for us so um we we met at uni and um the year after uni we got married and had a little baby so I had started having children quite young so I've got four kids so um but the first one I had by my 25th birthday and um We'd done up our house. We were living in Adelaide and I was consulting and he was painting as an artist. And um, So he'd done – that's interesting in itself. He'd done, you know, rural um, yeah. ag at, at Orange Ag, which yeah. is, you know, not so much work and a lot of partying. Yeah, a lot of partying, a lot of partying. But I think the, the travelling around the world for two and a half years after that really um, – you know, he built a lot of sort of creative ideas around what he wanted to explore and he came home and said to his parents at 25, you know, I want to be a painter. I've decided what I want to do and they sort of set, essentially said, don't be silly, go back to uni and study something else. <laughs> go and feed the but, dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and so and so he listened and went back to uni and studied and then finished and did a, a couple of stints in arts administration and things like that using the you know, aspects of his business degree and then said, no, I actually want to be a painter, I want to be an artist. So he's actually, that's been a constant thread through our lives together and his painting and making and now building, which is all sort of the way that we build is very creative. So they're all very closely aligned because it's all about perspective and visuals and but also with all of that learning around farming and agriculture and actually growing grapes for 15 years and things like that. It's very contextual and it's very um, – the creativity is in a harmony, I think, in harmony with, with the land because we're so connected to the land in which we're living. Um, so, yes, we, he woke me up in the middle of the night. Uh, we'd sold our little house that we'd renovated, as you could in your mid-20s, buy something for nothing, do it up and sell it for not much more than nothing. <laughs> but um, we'd just done that first stint with one little baby um, – and so we were sort of essentially homeless because we'd just sold our house and didn't know what the next step was. And he woke me up in the middle of the night and said, I've got a really good idea. My parents have put their vineyard on the market. It was where he grew up in his teenage years. He didn't really know anything about growing grapes, so he wasn't suggesting that he did. But he said to me, you love to make stuff. You're always making stuff and you you know get feedback from a lot of friends around you that you've got a good ability to describe what you're tasting and you're just fascinated by all these all these things. I reckon if we work really hard, we might be able to make a go of this. I think we should propose to you, to his parents, that we um, take on a huge mortgage with the bank and go buy that land from them and have a go at growing grapes and making wine. And even though neither of us knew anything about either aspect, we just dug in and and believed enough in that dream together that we went and did it. So we engaged it sort of essentially um, like an apprenticeship or mentorship scenario where we both engaged really, really knowledgeable, technical, uh, great grower and winemaker, so one each, and spent the next few years just learning a lot of the science around it, both physically prepared to do a lot of hard work had a few more children. <laughs> what year, so what year did you land there? Did you start? Uh, 95, 1995, mm-hmm. 98, sorry. 98, yeah. 98. Cool. Um, and then the first wine I released 
um, was in 2001. So that was the first one I could, I wanted to stand behind and say I'm really proud of this. And the thing was that the vineyard is a very grows really premium quality grapes. It's just on the northern side of the Onkaparinga River in McLaren Vale, and I really didn't want to stuff it up. So I, you know, I, we we still continued to sell the fruit, and it went to Penfolds. It often achieved what they call icon status, so it goes into mm. you know some of their top brands, including Grange, but and some of the others. But also, it had had a, a really premium history and we needed to know how to achieve that and that that's a lot harder than obviously than just growing table table grape like table based wine or village style wine if you like what's um, village oh just like wine, just yeah entry level yeah garden variety yeah garden variety yeah. style wine um making that from grapes Delage. that are that's oh, <laughs> it's just concept from France but it's you know it's that's like cool. you know as it. you go up to sort of Grand Cru but you start at Village level and you you mm. make your way up mm. and there's nothing wrong with that in fact that technically to make excellent value for money wine is is also extremely tricky to do um, to actually be truly great value for money um, anyway distraction um yeah, so it was actually Sam's suggestion to me to have someone hold up a mirror and say, this is what I see in you. Mm. This is what I think you might be really good at. And so from that, I'm really grateful because it's built, it's, it sort of built a great love of, of taking what I was enjoying and putting it into something I might be able to build a career from in terms of making wine. And so we trundled along, um, ended up exporting to 15 countries, building this really beautiful sort of diamond uh, in the rough kind of brand. What was the label? It was called Eulathorn, which is the name of the vineyard, Eulathorn. Yeah, is that um, does that mean anything in Indigenous? Uh, uh, no, it, it's, it sounds like it should. It actually was a misspelling of Ullathorn, and Ullathorn was the first Catholic priest to come out from Ireland on the in the first group of boats to Australia, and that that was the most – so we lived in a really old little cottage, it's like 1850s, and that was the southernmost point that the mail was delivered to on the Flurio and people used to have to come up to the Flurio. The people who owned that land and lived in that cottage and were the sort of mail drop-off point were very good Irish Catholics and they named that land after their priest. Okay. So that's the story that we were told as a family. Sam's father was told, Sam's parents were told and his grandmother. And so, but the, na- the spelling was incorrect. They planted grapes in the late 60s, so 1969, they started planting Shiraz and Grenache, not because they want to be grape growers. In fact, Sam's dad was a doctor and his mum was a nurse and they wanted to plant, uh, they wanted to create a wholesale nursery for plants and also a piggery. And they had to convince council and work with council on how they were going to deal with the effluent responsibly from the pigs. And the concept was if you plant a vineyard and then you can um, flow all the... Um, effluent from the the piggery there they hadn't set the piggery up yet but they planted the grapes and then right at the last minute the council said actually we've changed our mind you can't have a piggery (laughs) and so they were left with the grapes which i'm i'm you know obviously was so excited Mm. by in retrospect but they were pretty disappointed and um and so it wasn't really their skill set to be growing grapes and in fact this is at a point in time in australia's history where they're pulling vines so it wasn't really a great moment in the cycle of the wine industry and so fair enough you know they had it being managed and it wasn't really a passion piece for them so much anymore and 
Sam's family had a big life in Adelaide and um, they'd moved off the vineyard by that stage. So, but for us, it looked like an incredible opportunity for learning, for creating a, a balance for both of us, we thought, ironically, where Sam could paint and have his hands in the soil and contribute to our family's uh, income and then I could make wine and we could raise children. We did. We went on to have three more children there. So um, we did raise uh, a little brood that we thought were going to be uh, great pickers and pruners <laughs> and um, ha- ha- my, my how things change. But um, uh, it was a very happy time. It was an extraordinary time. We had all the stresses of great or of terrible vintage after great vintage after terrible vintage, and um, and that roller coasting roller coaster road that farming can be. Um, <clears throat> we've got our own little roller coaster going on, I guess. In Ki, the difference is that that's not our primary source of income. It is some. It is a legacy piece for us. It is something we want to create and build for future generations, and to improve something and leave something better than when we started. That's a very different thing from having a farm that is the the you're 100% reliant on for your income and things like that. So we, we're approaching it quite differently. Our responsibility is as high uh, to the land, but it's 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 a very different purpose and and a, a very privileged one to be able to take that approach for sure. And we're really aware of that, but we want to we want to have a go at doing this mm. well and learning along the way. Um. Back to the vineyard and and your um, success because I understand that you did have success there. You were awarded, well, I'm not sure how many awards, but you got you got you were was it winemaker of the year in McLaren Vale in some point, and then you were you were sort of winemaker of the year in a, in Australia for an inaugural woman's award. Was is that right? Yeah, that's right. You have done some research. A little bit, a little bit of googling. Well, yeah. no, Nick told me a bit about it. Oh, he yeah. said she's very controversial. Oh, controversial. I, said, well, that's it, controver- I think he said the word. Yeah. I think he used the word controversial. Might have to unpack that with you. <laughs> no, but he was. He actually said it with pride. I have to say okay. it, was, it wasn't like oh, she's. You know, we're all as a family, we're a bit upset with her. No, it was actually <laughs> said with pride. So yeah. tell me about that because um, I haven't had a whole lot of lot to do with the, the wine industry. Um, mm. Well, enough actually. Dad, Dad was the head steward at the. Sydney Wine Show for many years, and oh, we've cool. got we've drunk wine forever. Mm. Um, <laughs> I know quite a few winemakers and grape growers. Yeah. So tell me about that, like that, because that I got, I understand that you you won that award. Your training was not formal. Mm. You hadn't been off to do get all your, your tickets and so on. Yeah. Um, uh, what was that like for you? Given that you no doubt won that award. Um, Fairly, if that's the right word to use there, like on on mm. your merit, mm. you know, what was that like for you to kind of for for others to kind of find that hard to swallow? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if others found it hard to swallow. I I felt very supported when I won the award, and people were really happy, genuinely happy for me. Um, I think I was the most surprised, to be honest, because um, I'd been making wine for nine years at that point. Um, I, I was starting to work out that I, what I could do, and that I might be might have some skill here. Um, I knew I'd won a trophy in the McLaren Vale Wine Show. Uh, I'd been asked for wine uh, for the, t- you know, for people to drink on the, at the table at the big legendary McLaren Vale Wine Show lunch, which is normally 
you know, I think 800 people in a mm. huge marquee. It's a lot of fun. And um, I was interstate at the time and I got a call saying, is anyone from Mulethorne going to be there tomorrow? And I was like, There's the only one from Mulethorne is me. I'm a <laughs> one-woman show. Tell me, tell me a bit more. And they said, well, just be really good if someone from Mulethorne could be there tomorrow. <laughs> and I said, okay. So I changed my plans because it was just going to be a year I couldn't get to the lunch. Mm. I was... I was literally um, in Brisbane selling my own wine on, like, you know, leather to the pavement. I was mm. literally one-woman show from one minute in Blundstones, you know, racking wines and um, the next minute with heels and doing dinners and, and everything in between. So um, I, I listened and, and got back there and um, walked in. You get announced in. <clears throat> so all the winemakers do a procession and you get announced in and everyone sits down. People are getting up and going over just to the main wine table and grabbing bottles and putting it down on the table and drinking. And I was sitting eating and after a little while I thought, God, that's a bit embarrassing. No one's choosing my wine because I knew that I'd won a trophy and there are all these wines on the table I couldn't within what I could see. So clearly I wasn't un, even thinking through the process of how all of this works because it's just not on my radar. Mm. I don't do things for the awards. It's great to receive them and it's so, you know, I, I'm like anyone that has a certain element of doubt, self-doubt, so it's always nice to get those external um, acclaims mm. but, uh, or acclamations, but I just wasn't really thinking about it and... Um, and next thing I so I, my my moment was oh my goodness no one's wanting to drink my cabernet and it was I think what was um, so what happened is then they announced the award and of course all the cabernet all my my wines were put on the table and I get it I had to get up and make a speech and and without any preparation I think um, you know I, I I've been thinking a lot about this lately in terms of our fear around stepping forward when we think we don't know enough, we don't have the right paper, the right tickets, we haven't done the right study, that statement you made before about perfection. Um, I, I, I think a lot of people go through life with a feeling of, um, you know, that, that they shouldn't be there or they're not quite good enough. And, and I think that when you win an award and you're surrounded by people who are far more experienced than you and have all the degrees and whatever, I just thought, oh, my goodness. But I had an extraordinary mentor and a gentleman called Brian Light who um, is an excellent technical winemaker and was taught me so much about what I know today. And obviously I've put lots of layers over that now with other learning and I've done studies since and things like that. But I just... Um, have so much of that those early years to thank him for in teaching me because it's really interesting. I could taste and smell what I wanted to make. I just didn't know how to do it technically. And he taught me that science and I'll be forever grateful because it built slowly, built confidence and was really interesting. I walked away from that thinking, you know, with that first feeling of I just might be able to do this. I just might be able to build a career. Now this is nine years down the track and I'm exporting to 15 countries and I'm just starting to think I might be able to do this and build a career here. So it was, you know, you, you've, you've really just value adding to farming. It's not a very stable uh, feeling and and, I, and we're on very bespoke level. Um, so people, I, I had a really good private buyer following around the world so people would buy and put in their cellars. I got to see some of those incredible cellars travelling around the world. My brand was being poured in some of the great restaurants, um, in, particularly in London and in Southeast Asia. 
and I'd done a lot of work in those markets in dinners and things like that. So I'd definitely put in the work um, and told the stories. And I'd had a lot of, you know, at the time Odd Bins was huge in London and the head of Odd Bins had come and sat at my dining room table with my four little children running around and done tastings. And so we were also had that beautiful authenticity, I think, for people to come come in and experience what we are about as well. And the genuine and our genuine position that we're not experts, we're just growing and learning as we go. Um, but what happened is that we um, wanted to purchase, buy a bit more land um, and another vineyard that was closer into the centre of McLaren Vale and build a winery there so that we had our own space because at this stage I've been making on the floor of other people's wineries. So I really wanted to build a home for Yulathorn and have it more central within um, McLaren Vale. And we found found a great old vineyard. And instead of going to the bank, we took on a business partner of someone we thought we knew, but we didn't really know them in the end. And we had very different um, ideas around what, what success looked like and what that brand should look like. And I was going to be making Yulathorn when I was 80. I just lived and breathed it, it was my identity, et cetera, and, and pretty quickly we realised that was not going to work. But in that time uh, of being in business together for a couple of years, we'd grown quite a lot as a business and we just we couldn't buy that person out. We were kind of stuck, really. And uh, so we met, Sam and I made a decision that, you know, at 40 I'm still young enough to, or however old I was, might have been a bit older, 45, I was still young enough to, to uh, start again if I chose to start again and we just couldn't, couldn't come to an agreement and we couldn't work it out. We didn't have the, the legal uh, papers to sorted in order to support a position within the law. So it was big learnings, big learnings. And um, so we did start again. And, and actually, even then, when I when we sold, I didn't know if I was going to keep making wine. I just didn't know what was going to be left in inside me once I'd finished. And I have got a deep interest in making, but not just wine. And people like to pigeonhole you, um, you know. And and I I'm not a person that really needs to be pigeonholed. I don't look for it. I have a broad interest, and I want to be, you know, learning across multiple disciplines but all connected around flavour and scent so for me it's clear but I think other people are kind of trying to work out what this is um so yeah I went to France and did vintage and said to Sam uh by the time I come back I'll know if I'm done or not so how long goes that this is um 2016 yeah cool so I uh, went and did vintage in France for the same two families that I've been doing vintage for six years came home and said, I still love it. I still think I've got some good wines to make in me. I still feel young and, and vital enough to express those. I'm going to start a new label it's in my name, so it's just Rose Kentish Wines, and I'm going to keep going. And um, so I continued to and had a, an agreement to continue with those relationships in France because they were very personal relationships with the two families and then making wine from fruit because we'd sold our vineyard um, making wine from fruit from growers in McLaren Vale that I'd known and got to know through community, through connection and through making village-style wines in and around Yulathon because Yulathon was so premium, the, the fruit grown there, that I needed to look for more of the daily drinking um, priced grapes and, and that style of wine that you can make from, from um, 
from the grapes that are grown in the different soils than what Eulathorn was um, planted. And so, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned to actually go back to making great value for money wines. Um, I've certainly got some other things that are pretty gorgeous uh, that are more premium, but I, I'm now completely tipping that triangle on its head and um, and I'm very interested in making wine for the people and I'm very interested in in um, making delicious, affordable, um, aromatic, delicious <laughs> uh, wines that, that speak of land and speak of place. Um, and so that's what, what my new label, new as of, what, six years old now, mm. is really about. There's been a bit of a dent put in that in that um, I also started a brewing company called Spark at the same mm. time. Tell us about that. Um, so it's a four, this is probably, yeah, this is probably more where my brother's comments around, uh, how this plays out in the world, um, comes in. So in, in 2014, I was nominated for the Australian winemaker of the year and I was the only female finalist. Um, and the, it's a career award and Peter Gago, who heads up Penfolds, won in the year, um, that I was nominated, I was, a, for me, a huge surprise to be nominated. Um, but, again, I think just because of that whole full-service aspect of what I was doing and the awards I'd won and the fact that I, even though I was, you know, a very um, bespoke winemaker, my reach around the world and people would, were collecting my wines and, I don't know, I think there was probably the work in France. You were doing here. something pretty I don't good. know, there was something, <laughs> something that they thought was good and I was really um, just so... Um, delighted to be part of that group and nominated. And I hadn't, again, I'd never played a card as a female winemaker. I'm just a winemaker and I wasn't looking around the room at that time thinking. It's only on reflection that I realised I was the only female winemaker in the room. And the following year, I was nominated for the Australian Women in Wine Winemaker of the Year, the Australian Winemaker of the Year, but the group was the Australian Women in Wine. And the whole purpose of that award is to try and encourage women to step forward and to try and show so that the next generation they mm. can't be something they can't see so if if there aren't enough women stepping forward and being celebrated then what hope of the next generation have and I hadn't really thought about that I'm just going about my business having babies making wine um, trying to hold my business together uh, traveling the world trying to achieve some kind of balance as a as a um as a mother, as a partner, as a you know daughter, as a sister, all those things, and um, uh, but what what I was soon made aware of in winning that award was that ten years in the ten years prior, fifteen percent of the winemakers were women in Australia, and it had gone down to eight percent in twenty fifteen, and it was declining. And because I was sort of a bit uncomfortable winning in a female winemaker of the year, I thought, I want to be a winemaker, not a female winemaker. It's like they a subcategory. They don't have a male winemaker. No, either, no. Yeah. But then that's the natural bias, isn't it? That's or a, where... cis, a cis male winemaker now. Yeah. Is that what we're called? Yeah. <laughs> so um, I, I just sort of was struggling a little bit with that. And then I'm, it was made very clear to me that if I don't step forward and if we don't make these noises and we're not getting the attention of the next generation. And we're also not talking about some of the issues around um, the fact that it's not that 
it's an equal number of men and women that are studying onology, but 10 years down the track, the women are not sticking. Why is that? Is it because the nature of the industry doesn't support um, the fact that women tend to be the primary caregivers if they want to go and have children 10 years after they've done their winemaking degree? Or, like, how does all of that play out? Can you job share as a winemaker? Sort of unheard of, you know, 15 years ago, all that kind of thing. So it's these are good things to talk about because it actually brings the winemaking industry up in in pay, at the same pace as a lot of other industries that are doing this really well. So when, when I really thought about it, I thought these are good conversations to have. I want to be a part of this. Um, anything that I can do to support a more diverse and equal um, opportunity for men and women in my industry, that's a good conversation. So a step forward into that and then and it just made me really think about opportunities in general for everyone. So not just women, but for everyone in the industry and as a maker and if I'm someone who's uh, starting to become a leader in my industry through nature of age and experience and some awards, then what can I do with that that contributes back? And so Carrie Allen and I started as two co-founders an alcohol business called the Spark Change Beverage Company and we started by brewing Um, But we always saw ourselves across all beverages. Um, But we started by uh, creating four four brews, and we'll call them brews because only one of them was a beer, but four brews that we put up on a platform called Posible and it was the only alcohol platform you could sell alcohol um, in Australia at the time. As a a crowdfunding crowdfunding thing. And we sold in in four weeks, we sold about $107,000 worth of product from a company no one had ever heard of and product they'd never tasted. And, in fact, the images were just renders of cans. Um, We'd just been making some things with um, our young brewer, brewer, Aggie Gaich, um, who'd come uh, to us from Young Henry's in Sydney. Uh, great little brewery in Sydney and she was about to go to America and we talked her into coming and working with us first. Um, And, yeah, we made four things that we thought were going to be a great um, starting card, opening card, around cider, hard lemonade, ginger beer and one beer, Pilsner, Pilsner Lager. And we chose that selection of products and worked really hard on developing these beautiful, all-natural, um, no-sulfur, really low-sugar um, brews that we, we thought would be also attractive to everyone, not just, you know, the, the typical sort of craft male beer and tattoo sort of crowd that are really comfortable with high-hop, high-bitter-style brews, but actually making things that are much more attractive to new entrants, so people coming to beers for the first time, but also people mm. who don't like beer but love brewed product and and making things in a way that weren't being made. So ginger beer that actually had real ginger in it was quite a hoot. Apparently it was quite a new concept. No. Yes. So, um, you know, ginger. yeah, and the hard lemonade, you know, using lemons from the Adelaide Hills and the Riverland and champagne yeast. So, you know, again, some of my knowledge as a winemaker and then Aggie's knowledge as a brewer and pulling those things together and me us really creating a platform where she as a young maker, happened to be female, could step forward and and make these great brews. And, we, and you know, this is six years ago, so we've sort of evolved and changed quite a bit since then as a company. Um, but the intention wasn't to go out as a female-founded and led alcohol business. It, it's just that very quickly we got identified as that. And 
being female was enough of a difference to lead with to stand out, which is uh, unbelievable, really. And the number of female brewers in Australia is less than 3%, so it's even lower than female winemakers. So I thought we could do some good work here and provide opportunities just in that way of trying to create a bit of a platform for to attract anyone, but definitely if there were women interested to try and create opportunities. And so we did things like when we'd sell a keg, we'd capture some money from that because we're a four-purpose company, so we'd give a lot of money away. Over a quarter of a million, quarter of a million dollars we've given away in six years through different um, sales programs that we've done. And, um, yeah, the idea was that, you know, through the sale of our kegs, we'd capture like $10 a keg and we'd put that towards um, educating um, a, someone through the brewing program. And that was, um, yeah, a young female brewer that we'd identified that was interested in doing that. So, you know, we've, we've sort of created programs that help support the value system of the brand. But the brand itself was young, disruptive, and was really about not putting your head in the sand and creating. And it was also not, not to be taken too seriously in terms of the language and um, really talking to millennials and their allies. So people who really wanted to think about key issues in society that where heads were in the sand not to be political but actually agitational around social change. And so, yeah, we put sort of, I guess, like slogans. Like a can is like a piece of real estate. You can just slap something on a billboard and say, let's talk about this. So we talked about sexual consent. We talked about gender equality. We talked about all these things um, and wanted to spark conversations, which is where the name came from. We weren't saying we knew everything. We just said, let's talk. Let's mm. keep talking. And the best place to talk is when you're sitting with a beer in your hand yeah. or a brew in your hand. Um, but yeah, that's a really, it's been one of the hardest things I've ever done because at the same time with social change, you get a lot of pushback and people say, don't talk to me about social change. I just want to have a beer, you know, so that you get the pushback of people who don't want change. And so there's that natural tension between the agitators and people who want change and those who don't. So, um, yeah, it's it's been quite a ride, and we we um, have taken on shareholders. We've grown. Uh, we started to grow quite nicely as a business uh, just before COVID, and then with COVID, we've been deeply impacted, and we're just standing up and dusting off our knees at the moment, and and getting moving again. Not through lack of trying. We've just done. We just did everything through COVID. But what happened is that we'd brewed about three hundred thousand dollars worth of at COGS price, cost of goods price, delicious brews, put them into keg, ready to launch up the East Coast. And, of course, the East Coast shut down through COVID, so we had keg ageing, kegs ageing or brews ageing in keg. And so I was faced as the maker with a very big problem of how to... We were either going to pour that down the drain and we saw reports around the world Mm -hmm. of pubs pouring their beers down the drain... Um, and, and I think if I reflect back to my upbringing and not wasting and, and using up what, what you're growing and, the, and understanding the, how you capture so much energy and money and time into what you produce, to just tip that down the drain mm. is just inc- I, it's something I can't even get my head around. And so going back to what I'd learned in Corsica and taking the great mark and rehydrating that and then creating spirit from that thought, well, what does our apple cider taste like? I mean, when you make apple brandy, you're distilling cider to make brandy. What does our hard lemonade taste like when you distill it? What does our ginger beer taste like? What does our beer? What do our beers taste like? So I I pulled a uh, I bought a little uh, alembic copper five liter still from Portugal through 
online through COVID times and started distilling small amounts and seeing what they'd taste like once mm. I put, you know, sort of botanical tea bags, essentially making up bundles of interesting combinations of flavours from all around me here and immersing those into the spirit. So creating a honey malt liqueur, which is what I think I smell of today, honey and cinnamon <laughs> and orange. Yum. <laughs> um, with malt, with the beers as the base. Um, and then creating gin and a red Amaro, which is obviously a beautiful sort of bitter um, liqueur that makes great Negronis and sprit, Aperol Spritz style things. Um, and they sold really well. And we'd, we had always wanted to um, move beyond beer or beyond brews into distilling, which is more of my natural space. Uh, we'd already done a wine in can and that had gone really well for... Um, a series of events across Australia, but distilling was definitely our, a space that we hadn't moved into. And so out of out of a, a big problem, we sort of did this luxury upcycle and pulled something through and instead of wasting it, created something new from it. So it was a deeply um, creative response in the end in a very difficult time to a crisis on our hands of what to do for a little company holding on to that much stock and it depreciating and and not improving, actually decreasing in its value and its freshness, which is the opposite of wine, um, was a real problem because beer is like bread, you know. It needs to be drunk young and mm. fresh, ideally. And so, um, you know, from that we developed it. We've developed a spirit range. I've been working for the last 18 months, two years on a very unique whiskey wash, which we're now pulling through into spirit. And we've got a whiskey program running, which is deeply expensive and, and has taken a lot to pull together and manage, but a great use of my skills across brewing to make the wash uh, and the new product development and flavour profile development across oak selection based on my 25 years of winemaking and knowledge, but then also learning a lot and also it's not saying... And I've done some study, but also not saying because I don't know everything, I'm not going to start. But instead, I'm going to start with what I know and I'm going to learn and be really open and I'm going to create something quite unique as a result of that. So being brave and trying not to listen to, to voices of doubt in your own head, um, I think have, have been pretty critical through all of my life work as a maker. Well, I have a newfound appreciation for the time you've set aside this morning for this this chat, um, Rose, because you are a terribly busy person, clearly, and we're sitting amongst some of your products here. Oh, no, these are, no? are Sepulchre Road Distilleries products. Oh, no. But I just use their still. You just use their still. Oh, well, my mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, all your, so what the brand of your, your products, your, your distilled products? Yeah, they're, so the they're, brand's they're called Full of... Circle, Full oh, okay. Circle Spirits, and it's part of Spark. And um, the whole idea was that we've pulled, pulled these brews through Full Circle and yeah. essentially um, – made something better as a result, made something beautiful. And we've we've won some awards around Australia and, and a few international awards with them as well. So that's, again, going back to the fact that it's it's not everything, but it's such a great affirmation of the work that we're doing and that we can, we're doing something really delicious and beautiful here and that people are enjoying it. And you're using Christine, I believe. That's a, I haven't had a formal in, um, Oh, I didn't formally introduce no, her when we no, arrived. No, but, but um, Becky. She's a beauty. She's amazing. a beauty. Yeah, it's amazing. a beautiful German still, and um, the it, it she really does produce wonderful quality spirit. And um, 
I don't think I could make the spirit that I make without her mm. and the intention for Spark is to set up our own distilling house and or distillery and um, that's on our immediate future program just once we just brush, dust off our knees and um, <laughs> stand up again after. Yeah, well, we've got a brew pub in Adelaide in the CBD mm. um, where we brew from and obviously have the ability cr- to create community and, again, we've done a lot of events and initiatives there and we feed community on the square and we've done a lot of work in and around our responsibilities as a pub in the city. Um, but also we've been punished hugely in the city through COVID being a CBD, CBD-based venue and we've taken a lot of battering and bruising and so we're all just standing up and, as I said, dusting ourselves off and uh, we've got a fighting spirit and we've got some great events planned we've got some wonderful chefs coming in from all around australia who i've learned through met sorry through um pouring wine to them around australia who are all coming in in the back end of this year and starting to do some great work with us to to just get people excited about coming back into the city because of course the big social message from government has been stay home if you don't need to but actually businesses won't survive if you stay home you actually need also to get out into the world again and and find your communities and and find the the joy of connection again and so we're doing things to help people find that joy of connection because that was the big suffering wasn't it that um the unforeseen for some clearly government didn't think too much about it or if they did they didn't care you know about the that that impact you know yeah it's really left a, the the hospitality industry on its knees because uh, it hasn't been a very stable place for for the staff to work, and mm. we've done a lot of work in the last ten years to make it a professional industry, and for people to feel secure that they could grow and learn and develop. That there were some great mentors, um, and a lot of those people have stepped sideways into other industries because there was too much uncertainty. So we've lost so much talent, mm. and that means that can, you know society's going to have to be pretty patient with their service experience now for a little while until we can start attracting people back. And and of the people that stayed, we've worked really hard to keep um, a lot of our full-time staff that uh, and backed them in to feel confident that there's a future here for them in our company. And that's meant that they've had to do some things that they wouldn't normally do. So we've we made market boxes, we've made hand sanitizer and cream, we've... Um, you know, my chefs helped make me make sugar syrups all week for, for the liqueurs mm. because she can and she will and she does because they're the sort of people that we want to keep in our business. And um, to me, extraordinary humans are welcome here is all I'll say. <laughs> well, you're an extraordinary human, I have to say, um, and thank you for your time. Um, I'm conscious of the time. We, yes. This place is opening up. I have got a quick five or ten minute just chat um, a secondary thing. It's just available for our Patreon members, um, special for them. So it's just a quick sort of rapid fire, a couple of questions for you if you care to stick around. Sure. Um, you're a great advocate for the industry and for the, I guess, the um, you know creative spirit. So excuse the pun, but um, thank you for your time again, Rose. It's been wonderful and I've learned so much and I have to thank Nick for the tip the tip-off that he, he gave me for, for us to be able to chat today. Um, and this will be released a couple of weeks from now, not far away, actually. We're a bit, I'm a bit under the pump. I've got to play a bit of catch-up, actually. But um, 
it'll all be good. A couple of weeks' time, you'll be in the world again. Thank you, Rose. It's been wonderful. Thanks. Thanks for the chat. It's been fun. And next week on The Regenerative Journey, you'll be hearing from John and Kim Kaleski, 6th and 7th generation uh, grape growers uh, in the Barossa Valley. I caught up with them a couple of weeks ago and it was a first father and son interview I've done and it was fantastic. And John said, oh, I don't know, I haven't got much to say. Well, I couldn't I couldn't shut him up, which is wonderful. Those two bantered and it was just a lovely way to spend an hour or so with two gentlemen um, who are doing wonderful things in the Barossa. And uh, that's next week on The Regenerative Journey. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.